0: Chief Justice, may it please the
1: court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Well, welcome to a Rehearings episode of SCOTUS 101. This week, I replay my interview with Judge Van Dyke. This week, we have the pleasure of being joined by Judge Lawrence Van Dyke of the Ninth Circuit. He attended Montana State and Harvard Law, clerked for Janice Rogers-Brown at the D.C. Circuit, and among other things, has been the Solicitor General of two states and an Assistant Solicitor General of another. We are fast approaching his first anniversary on the bench. Judge, welcome to the show.
0: Well, Giancarlo, thank you very much for having me on. It's quite honored.
1: Oh, absolutely. Our pleasure. So my first question for you, Dick Van Dyke, any relation?
0: I wish I feel like I would maybe have a little more money or something, but he's never called or written or anything, so I, I'm afraid not.
1: Too bad. Too bad. Well, wow. back to uh, I guess the more boring, boring life of of law. What uh, made you decide to become a lawyer?
0: Well, I never thought of becoming a lawyer when I was younger. I didn't have any lawyers in my family. Uh, I grew up in Montana. And uh, my family had small businesses. Uh, First of all, it was a small irrigation business. And then my dad bought a farm. And then he later had a heavy civil construction business that I actually worked in during and and after college. And um, I just expected I'd take over that family business, um, which is why I got my undergraduate degree in engineering and a master's in construction management. But um, after my wife and I had been married for seven years and we had a couple kids We made the very disruptive decision to pack up the family, drive clear across the country from Montana to Massachusetts and attend law school at Harvard. And it was quite a culture shock for our young family.
1: What led you to that decision? Well, some things had changed
0: with the family business, and those resulted in me uh, deciding I needed to find another job. So I'd asked myself, well, what am I going to do now? And I thought maybe I could go to work for another construction company or maybe an engineering company. I also considered going full-time into uh, church ministry and, and because I also had some vague idea that being a lawyer might be a cool thing. Uh, I didn't really know that much about what lawyers did. We didn't have any lawyers in my family, as I mentioned, and, and we really didn't have anybody with an advanced degree at all. I don't think in my family, but I thought it might be cool to go to law school. So I took a sample LSAT test and I did well on that. So then I took the actual LSAT test and, um, uh, I did well on that and applied and got into Harvard Law School. And initially, uh, we were my wife and I, we were terrified of um, living in a big city. And so we had actually decided not to go there. We were looking at going somewhere else. Um, but ultimately, after some soul searching, we decided to take the plunge and move the family over there. Um, and I'm very glad we did. It was a great experience.
1: And after you go to Harvard, you clerked for Judge Janice Rogers-Brown on the D.C. Circuit. How was that?
0: That was amazing. Judge Brown is, is an amazing person. She's such an independent thinker um, in, in pretty much every way that you could uh, mean that. Um, after spending three years at uh, law school um, with professors and peers, most of whom I, I really liked but didn't see eye to eye with, I really wanted to to clerk for a judge where that judge would be a mentor, a little more like-minded perhaps. And um, Judge Brown definitely was a mentor to me, not so much because she tried to instill a certain mindset in her clerk. She didn't do that really at all, or because she was even like a particularly active teacher. But a lot by watching how she approached the law and life in general, um, I think somebody that was around her couldn't help but be influenced by that. You, you come across with, uh, if you're around Judge Brown for very long, she believes what she, uh, what she believes, not because it's easy for her, um, certainly not because it's always popular, but because uh, you recognize she's thought very long and hard about something, and she's become convinced that it's the truth, and she loves the truth, Judge Brown does, and she's willing to speak the truth, uh, even though she knows it's going to cost her and make her unpopular, at least in some circles. And so uh, that's uh, you just can't help but but have some of that rub off. I think.
1: Do you have any particular special memories of her?
0: Well, um, it's funny because uh, when I was looking for for a clerkship, I had this idea uh, that you know again I didn't know much about the law when I went to law school, and I didn't know much about clerking. I didn't have any family members that were lawyers. And I had this idea that I really wanted to clerk for a judge that had regular lunches uh, with her clerks. I'm not sure why. I think that meant that I would have, you know, a lot of FaceTime and sort of informal mentoring or something with the judge. And as it turned out, Judge Brown uh, didn't have a lot of lunches with her clerks, at least not when I clerked for her early on in her tenure as a federal judge. But we did get a lot of FaceTime with her. Um, we would go in, you know, we go into her office to talk about a case. And, and, and often we would come out literally four hours later and we might have talked about everything under the sun except maybe the case um and i'd be like oh my goodness i need to go get this bench memo done and and get home um judge brown's interests were so broad that she she never ran short of of interesting issues uh, to discuss and so that's uh, i think that's probably my my biggest general memory was just of of clerking for judge brown was the amazing conversations we would have about all kinds of things Uh, One other sort of maybe funnier memory or or more specific memory was it actually involves Judge Brown and and Judge Centel, another wonderful judge on the D.C. circuit. And I was a big fan of both of those judges. I applied to clerk for both of them and I interviewed with both of them. But after I would started clerking for Judge Brown, I sent Judge Centel an email on the internal network, letting him know that he may not remember me, but I would interviewed with him and I was currently clerking for Judge Brown. And she was perfect in every way except one, which was she didn't smoke cigars. So <laughs> if you ever needed someone to smoke a cigar with, please let me know. And I'd be happy to oblige him. So and then after I sent that email, you know, I got to thinking, oh, man, maybe Judge Brown, she might find out about that. I better go mm-hmm. tell her about it. So I went into her office and told her that I'd sent this email to Judge Sintel. I, mean, I think I'd printed out a copy or something. And uh, her response was, you're a syncophant." Uh, I didn't even know what a sycophant was, so I had to go look it up. So uh, that was my uh, Judge Brown, Judge Sintel experience.
1: Did she have any um, traditions that she did with her clerks?
0: Well, when I clerked for Judge Brown, uh, she was uh, pretty new on the the federal bench, uh, and I I was part of her second clerk class. So she didn't really have um, any traditions uh, or a lot of traditions then. She did have us all over to her and Dewey's uh, wonderful home for a nice dinner near the end of the clerkship. I remember that, um, which I expect she did with every clerk class. I'm not sure, but she didn't, you know, Judge Brown didn't have those kind of additions, at least when I clerked for her. The big, like I said, the big memory was, um, I guess you might call it addition, is just the ability to have these wonderful chats about, it seems like everything under the sun with her.
1: Besides Judge Brown, who have some of your other mentors been? Well,
0: uh, before I ever went to law school, um, one of my uh, key mentors was a preacher uh, named Mike Schrader that um, in part of the he was a big reason that I was actually seriously considering going into full time church ministry um, when I instead decided to go into law. And, and as I tell people, I discovered that as prideful as I am, maybe I wasn't well suited for ministry, but arrogance is kind of a, uh, almost a job qualification for lawyers, you know, so. Um, I decided to go into law. Uh, but, but seriously, uh, Mike, uh, he, had a, he had a beautiful life. Uh, he showed, showed me, I think, through example and through teaching how to live at the intersection of, of love and truth. And obviously, I'm still trying to apply that in my life. But he, and he's passed, he's passed away now. But he was a, a big mentor to me before I went into law. After, of course, I went into law, um, before I actually clerked for Judge Brown, I did spend a year at Gibson Dunn. Uh, the law firm of Gibson Dunn uh, in D.C., and during that year, um, Gene Scalia, who's now uh, Secretary of Labor, was a huge influence on me. I got to work on one big case with him for almost that entire entire year, and I learned a lot about excellence from getting to work for Gene. He is an impressive lawyer, and he also has a great sense of humor. And then after clerking for, for Judge Brown, um, I went, instead of going back to the D.C. office of Gibson Dunn, we moved the family down to Dallas, where we worked in, in the office there for some years, and I was a big part of me going down there was to work with Jim Ho, who obviously mm. is now Fifth Circuit Judge Ho, who was also a big mentor to me. Jim was always doing interesting pro bono cases, and he was very interested and active in helping his junior attorneys with their careers. and He always wanted to know what what a person wanted to do, and I, was, I personally was very blessed to come into his orbit, and I still count Jim as a great friend and mentor. And I say that, like many of my mentors, like um, Judge Brown, uh, Jim is stubborn about the truth. You know, when he believes something, he's very stubborn and he's willing. He's willing to um, say it, whether it's popular or not. And I think, obviously, that's an important thing. Mm-hmm. And I, after I after I did that, you know, I, I got into I got out of private practice and working in government. And I was blessed to spend four years working as Nevada Solicitor General um, for Nevada's Attorney General, who was Adam Laxalt, and. He, He is quite a mentor. Adam and I are very different people. He's obviously very active in political realm and he's, but he's such a principled politician and I I don't feel like I necessarily always see a lot of those. So I learned a lot from Adam. Um, It was fun to watch him and to work alongside him and for him. And I count him as a dear friend. And there's a lot more folks, Uh, Nick Tutanich, who's now the, um, now the uh, Nevada's U.S. attorney. He he was a colleague in Nevada's attorney general office Mm -hmm. Great guy. Jeff Clark, who was my more recent boss at Department of Justice. Um, Very, very um, principled, hardworking guy that I I was blessed to get to work under. Tom Hungard, who's a partner in the D.C. office at Gibson Dunn. I did a lot of pro bono work with Tom when I was at uh, Gibson Dunn and uh, very much admire him. And so there's many others I've very blessed to have gotten to work for and with many amazing people in my career.
1: You mentioned uh, the pro bono work that that they've done. You've done a lot yourself when you were at Gibson Dunn. What were some of the things that you worked on?
0: Well, um, so as you might imagine, uh, given my interest before law school that I had had gotten, I had uh, thought about going into full-time ministry, I was very interested in religious liberty issues after law school. And so very soon after joining uh, Gibson's uh, D.C. office, uh, two other very junior attorneys and I We came up with this idea of pitching a religious liberty pro bono issue uh, to the summer internship coordinators as a project we could do with summer associates. And our pitch was, well, this will, you know, there's got to be a bunch of summer associates that like us are interested in this work and it'll it'll track them, stay at Gibson. So we sold them on the idea. And there ended up being six of us, three uh, basically baby associates and three summer associates. We ended up researching and then writing um, most of a brief in a case involving an Orthodox Jewish day school being zoned out of uh, somewhere in new york i think it may have been long island and uh it was just an awesome experience for everybody involved we were uh, we were uh, all of us very young attorneys we got to do work that we maybe normally wouldn't get to do uh, as such an attorney so i was definitely bit by the bug and i think it was a great great opportunity for i think it was a great marketing thing for for gibson Dunn too so that was my i did that with my big pro bono project i did before going off to uh to clerk, and then after clerking, I, after I went down to Dallas office of Gibson, and that's one thing I loved about Gibson is they were always very supportive of doing pro bono work. And and working uh, for Jim Ho, I continued doing a lot of religious liberty pro bono work. And and, and then of course Jim went off to be the Texas Solicitor General, and and so I was doing some without him after that. But we, it, one case we had, we successfully sued the state of Texas about an election regulation, and it was a real elected group of plaintiffs that that we sued on behalf of, including. Uh, the ACLU and, and what is now First Liberty, which is a religious liberty litigation firm. So it was sort of a strange bedfellows case in that case. We, we won that case. I also wrote several Supreme Court amicus briefs in several cases. Um, one of those cases was on behalf of the gays and lesbians for individual liberty in support of the Christian Legal Society. So I was really um, I was really honored to be able to work on that case and uh, take the lead in that case. Um, And then we would moot lawyers arguing various cases. Uh, I remember mooting a Beckett fund lawyer who was arguing a case in the fifth circuit involving animal sacrifice by a Santeria practitioner, uh, I think in the Dallas area. So it was a real interesting, very different, but all sort of involving religious liberties. And then I think the last pro bono case that I actually helped with before I went into government service and then you can't really do much pro bono was um, Involved in Mississippi church that had been zoned out of an area of town. So basically, sort of came full circle to doing a very similar case to what we'd done with the, uh, the Orthodox Jewish Day School up in Long Island when I first started.
1: On the subject of working as an SG, has anyone ever told you you're a modern day Serenus Hastings? <laughs> Who's that? So Hastings, he was a lawyer and a judge and a politician. He traveled out west from New York to California during the mid-1800s, and he basically just hop-skipped along from state to new territory to new state, serving as a politician, a judge, uh, sheriff, you name it. Uh, And like like him, you basically skipped from state to state as Solicitor General. How How did that happen?
0: Um, so no, I never, never heard of Mr. Hastings, but, um, it does, I think my wife would probably, um, say, yes, that does sound like you, uh, and with raised eyebrows. Um, uh, I, you know, I, have been very blessed. Um, I have a very patient and long suffering family, especially my wife, Cheryl, and they definitely put up with a lot of moving over the years. Um, and honestly, I don't, I don't think I would have been able to have, um, the, uh, the, 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 pretty exciting career, um, that I was able to have, um, and le- without being able to move around, we literally lived in the East, the West, the North and the South of this great nation. And, and, and while it was definitely a challenge to move, I will say, um, that, uh, it, it, it allowed me to have opportunities. Um, in fact, I don't think I would have the wonderful job that I have today, which is my dream job, um, if I if I hadn't been willing to move to Nevada, for instance, to work with uh, Attorney General Adam Laxalt right after he was elected. So and, and, and the other thing I would say about being willing to move around, I realize not everybody can do that. But but being able to move around means that now I literally have friends all over this uh, nation, uh, friends and former colleagues that I got to know uh, through life and the law. Um, Texas and the East Coast, DC, um, all over because of being well on the move, and that's just a huge blessing. At Christmas time, you you're very aware of that when you get get out your Christmas card list, right?
1: What were some of the similarities and differences between each of your solicitor general positions? You know, what, I'm glad you asked that because
0: you know people I think just have an idea of state solicitors general offices that is that is usually sort of built off of the idea of what the federal Solicitor General's office is, right? And people are more familiar with that office. Um, And I always try to make sure people know there's quite a bit of variability between the state Solicitor General offices from state to state. Um, One funny anecdote, when I first moved to Montana, someone, uh, I I was talking, I I think it was to like a a former Solicitor General, and someone told me, they said, uh, so just so you know, the office of the Solicitor General In Montana is literally just that, my office, uh, my literal office. Uh, So whereas, you know, so it's one person. And in in Texas, there was, I think, almost two dozen attorneys uh, in the Solicitor General's office. And in Nevada, I was sort of uh, sort of the middle ground there. It was uh, a small but amazing team of folks, a very different composition and also Uh, Very different sort of work that you do in the Texas S.G.'s office has a large staff. I think in a lot of ways operates like the federal solicitor general's office on on the front lines of many of the biggest national cases in the country. In Montana, I actually litigated more in the trial courts than in the appellate courts, believe it or not, because um, oftentimes a, a, a case that was very important to the state of Montana might actually have been a case brought in the in the trial court there in state state trial court. Um, and then in Nevada, that was uh, sort of the Goldilocks, um, the, the perfect uh, the perfect mix, I guess. We did everything from state and federal trial courts um, all the way up to doing a lot of uh, amicus briefs and trying to get cases granted in the Supreme Court. So it really was. And we had a small team of about four of us. Uh, and and you, you get such a broad swath of everything from uh, tax issues to state criminal law issues to. Federal habeas issues um, and a lot of multi state issues so there are there are but I do also want to note that there are some similarities in state sg 's offices regardless of uh, you know notwithstanding not the differences and one is that I think in all of the offices i the three offices I work in, um, you usually get to work with uh, amazing attorneys from other states when you 're a state solicitor general, so even you know in Montana, the smallest office I was in. We got to coordinate with other states, which is great because you, you build this great network of, of professional relationships with other fantastic state attorneys. Um, and the other is that, regardless, it may be different uh, forums you're working in, but you're almost always working on high profile, important litigation. So it just depends on the state, you know, where that litigation may be at. So it's always interesting, amazing work.
1: You also served as the as the deputy assistant attorney general in the environmental and natural resources department at a DOJ. What was that experience like, and what did you do? So um,
0: that was very different. Uh, it, it, you know, I got that's where I got to work uh, for Jeff Clark, who was who and still is, I think, the uh, AAG uh, there in that uh, over that uh, department and. Jeff is a is a very driven, principled person and I think was really um, trying to to do a great job there. Uh, He's another person that's stubborn about the truth. um, And I really enjoy that. You know, uh, I enjoyed all of my my colleagues there, the the, the leadership team. I guess you call it the political leadership team that I was part of and worked with, but also the career folks that worked for me. I was very impressed with um, I had 80 attorneys. It was a very um, it was a very different job. Uh, there than what I had done before, because in most of my in most of my private practice and most of and, and being a state solicitor general's office, you're a you're a um, generalist. Right. You take on all kinds of cases. And, and that helped prepare me for my current role as a federal judge um, there. And part of the reason I was interested in that job was because it was a specialty, you know, it was environmental and um, public lands litigation. And so definitely more specialized. And I had 80, you know, also um, before that, I had supervised a small team of maybe a half dozen folks, whereas there I had almost 80 very talented trial lawyers that worked for me at the Department of Justice. So a very, very different role there. Um, unfortunately, it kind of I mean, fortunately, in the sense of I'm very glad I have my current job, but unfortunately, I only got to spend about eight months there. So I was just getting up to speed, so to speak, when. When I ended up getting appointed to this job, but it was, it was a neat, uh, neat job. Wonderful to be able to work in in the Department of Justice. the remain justice. It's, it's um, every day you go in that building, and uh, definitely a, an amazing institution.
1: How did you get to become a judge?
0: <laughs> yeah, I still ask myself that question. Uh, uh, no, no idea. No, um, you know, honestly, I think it, a lot of it was being in the right place at the right time, and no doubt. Um, Nobody would be surprised to think I that there was some providence uh, thrown in there too. I think I always, I, you know, ever since law school, I thought it would be wonderful to be a federal appellate judge. But I'm I'm not not that dumb that I thought that you know I recognized that the odds are were probably about the same as being struck by lightning, right? So um, when Judge Bybee here in Nevada announced that he was taking senior status. I think what what really worked in my favor and what helped me to be considered and ultimately appointed, uh, confirmed and appointed to this position was uh, a combination of the fact that i had obviously spent four years working as the state solicitor general here. And I had some very highly regarded folks from Nevada, like uh, former Attorney General Adam Laxalt in my corner. And that obviously helped uh, and, and was imperative. Um, I think it also helped that I had strong support across the country. Right. So, you know, the, the the White House folks and the and the various folks that are considering who to fill these posts, you know, they when if they're hearing from people across the country that they uh, have, a, have a good view of me. I think that helped a lot. Um, and so it was sort of a combination of the support at home here, I guess, so to speak. And then and then also. Um, support across the country from folks I'd worked with in my various jobs and then also as you, you know representing states
1: your confirmation hearing was not only contentious but you were the subject of some really harsh and unfair criticisms do you have any thoughts on the confirmation process
0: well it was definitely contentious um you know, that wasn't a surprise to me. Uh, my wife and I, Cheryl, uh, my wife Cheryl had, and I had, had talked beforehand and we had agreed that, um, you know, I had run I had run for for state judge uh, in, in an election before. And that was challenging. And uh, and so we knew based on and, I, and I'd worked in the public eye and my role as Solicitor General um, in these states. And so we knew that it was going to be tough. Um, we knew that it would probably be contentious. We didn't know how it would be. You know, you can't forecast exactly how things will play out, but you you know it'll probably be tough. And um, so we weren't surprised. It does hurt to be attacked like that um, and vilified, uh, but I definitely was not surprised. But I I will say this: um, while it was no doubt it was tough in in the moment, it was challenging and, and tough. What I remember most about that process is the the amazing support. And um, just kindness that so many people showed me, from old law school friends um, to people I'd worked with around the country. Uh, inc- lawyers, a lot of them, uh, a lot of the lawyers that I worked with, wrote letters of support, uh, which was super helpful. My non-lawyer friends um, that you know probably didn't fully understand everything that was going on would send me notes, um, and it's such a, I was genuinely overwhelmed by the um, kindness of so many people. So it is a contentious process. It's challenging. And I don't know what we can do to try to fix that. Um, But it also what comes out of it is there's a lot of great people in this world. And I'm very, very thankful for that. Very mindful of that.
1: So you're coming up on your one year anniversary on the bench. That'll be January 2nd. What are your uh, reflections on your first year? (laughs)
0: <laughs> so I, I really love this job. Um, it, it really is my dream job and nothing. Um, actually, you know, I, I pinch myself and, and it's it uh, is what I would hoped it would be. Um, I, the only in in almost every respect, I love getting to work with my um, clerks closely on trying to get cases right. I love my, my judicial assistant is, is a woman I, I uh, knew from back in the Nevada Attorney General's office, and she's amazing. Uh, she came over with me. And uh, the only thing I would say in the cases are, are super interesting. And my colleagues have been great to work with. The only thing I would say that has been less than pleasant surprise is the sheer volume of the job. I I clerked on the D.C. Circuit, as we talked about, uh, not on the Ninth Circuit. And so and of course, you know, it's it's you hear it all the time. The D.C. Circuit doesn't have a very heavy caseload um, and. Uh, I would definitely say there's some truth in the fact that the Ninth Circuit has seems to seems to, at least in my experience, have a much heavier caseload. And it it's not an exaggeration to say that I've I've worked more weekends since starting this job on average, I think, than in any previous job I've done. Um so the workload's been an adjustment and, and a little bit, you know, when you when you when you dream of being a federal appellate judge, I think you dream of Sitting and pondering long hours about you know esoteric legal issues, uh, it's it's a bit of a raging river. Uh, so you don't have a lot of time to sit and ponder. But I have an amazing staff, great colleagues, and like I said, a wonderful judicial assistant and and things really. And I think I'm starting to finally sort of plane out. And um, the last couple of months, starting to sort of get on top of it a little bit. I don't feel like I'm drowning. So it really is the best job. Uh, that, that there's there's just a lot of it.
1: Given that most of your first year has been uh, uh, in COVID land, have you been able to develop any traditions of your own with your law clerks? Um, you
0: know, I, when I first started, I had several folks. I obviously had clerked and had some idea of, of some traditions, but I, I had talked to a couple folks that gave me some ideas about things that they did with their judge when they clerked. And, and I made a little short list. Um, and I've tried to do some of that, notwithstanding the pandemic and the and, and the, the workload. I, I usually eat with my clerks either either out or um, or in chambers, uh, probably once a week at least, and, and and they they definitely get lots of face time, uh, probably more than they prefer sometimes. Maybe uh, we we typically have the clerks and my assistant Jan over to my house about once a month or so for uh, dinners, or we go to Jan's house, who happens to be an amazing host and cook. So uh, we'll, we'll, we spend a lot of time together. It's kind of like a small family, which has been wonderful. We've actually done a couple shooting outings. Uh, I I do some uh, competitive shooting from time to time, and so we did a couple of those with the clerks, and and everybody came out uh, with with, uh, no injuries, so that's good. Uh, We we floated the Truckee River, which was a blast. I'd never done that before, uh, even though I'd lived here for some years. Uh, So we're definitely going to do that every year, hopefully. And, of course, uh, in honor of Judge Centel, we will occasionally smoke cigars together, but uh, smoking is optional.
1: Do you keep any special mementos uh in your chambers either from your career or your life before the law?
0: <laughs> so, I was a little surprised at how big the office is they gave me. Um and it's so big I have I actually took my home gym and put it in my office. So I have my home gym in my office. So I don't know if that counts as a memento, but uh I've got got that here. And then um I've got a challenge coin collection that I've sort of picked up over the years uh, in working in state H.E.'s offices and, of course, Department of Justice. And I also have a collection of bobbleheads, um, including my Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas bobbleheads that I that I uh, got over the years. Uh, and uh, I've told my clerks um, that when they roll off each year, they they have to buy me a bobblehead of themselves. Apparently, you can go get yourself, get it, you know, send a picture and get a bobblehead made yourself. So. Um, and my hope is to have a sort of a, a shelf full of my former clerk foul So we'll see if that sticks. I hope it does. And uh, let's see. And finally, I have, I have the bullet uh, over there framed that I used to harvest a bull elk with my uh, pistol years ago in Montana before I went to law school. I keep that around to try to remember who I was before I got all educated and civilized. So.
1: Well, Judge, it has been such a pleasure having you on. And I'm going to want to ask you one final question before we let you go. That is, if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about?
0: Hmm. So, uh, well, I see. I I probably want to talk with Justice Scalia and ask him where he went wrong with his son, Gene. Um, I'm just kidding, obviously. Um, I a uh, huge fan of Gene, and was an honored to work with him. I, you know, it'd be an honor to talk with Justice Scalia about anything, obviously, right? Or, or even just, uh, just get to fish with them. And I'm not even that crazy about fishing. So, uh, but you know, in addition to that, I, I think I, I wouldn't mind, in a more serious note, I guess I wouldn't mind uh, talking to either Justice Thomas or Justice Alito about staying humble and the role that they're in. You know, they both. They both seem to me to exemplify um, sort of the attitude. They, ha- they have a gravity about their jobs, but they're not puffed up or arrogant about it. And, um, you know, I'd like to I don't know, I'd like to see, hear from them their thoughts on on how to do that. Uh, so that that's, I suppose, um, one thing that I'd be interested in talking to one of the sitting justices that I admire.
1: Well, Judge, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Oh, thank you very much. I sure appreciate it, Giancarlo. And and, uh, thank you so much for having me on.
1: Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. As a note, next week we will not have an episode because Heritage will be celebrating its 50th anniversary. But in the meantime, be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101 or email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted.
0: You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.